Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 165 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is N.K. Jemison, author of the Inheritance Trilogy and the Dreamblood series. Her latest novel, The Fifth Season, is set in a world constantly racked by natural disasters, where sorcerers who can control earthquakes and volcanoes are both feared and valued. And now, here's our interview with N.K. Jemison. All right, so we're here with N.K. Jemison. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so first of all, just tell us a bit about what some of the books were that really got you interested in fantasy and science fiction. I was a giant fan of Tanith Lee, uh, of Octavia Butler, of C.S. Friedman, um, you know, kind of all over the place in terms of my, my interests. Um, but I've also, um, you know, mentioned in other interviews that I, I read a lot of or read a lot of mythology, um, especially as a child and as a teenager. Well, so how about those authors you mentioned? What are some of the things about their work that really drew you to them? I liked the way that Tanith Lee played with conceptualizations of good and evil and also the way in which, in a lot of her work, she emulated uh, that sort of ancient epic style. Um, so, for example, with the uh, Knight's Master, Death's Master, I can't remember what that series is called, but uh, it felt very um, sort of oral tradition recorded on paper, even though you knew that she had made it up, but she was able to capture the feel of stories that had been passed down um, and stories that uh, had kind of grown apocryphal with retelling and things like that. Um, and I like the way that she played with concepts of, uh, of who the hero was. Um, you know, you, you started off um, with I think Azran was the the uh, first book's protagonist, um, who's a terrible person, and then over the course of the story, well, terrible god. Um, and over the course of the story, you started to see so much more complexity to them. Um, and then with Octavia Butler, I liked the darkness of her science fiction, um, the fact that she really just did not pull any punches. Um, where it came to really depicting not just, you know, scientific, uh, uh, you know, implications like if aliens showed up, um, not just depicting, you know, the way that the world would change, but depicting the way that people would react to those changes, um, which was something that I really had not seen a lot of in science fiction um, at the point that I first started reading her. Um, you know, you you see the usual science fictional, you know, it's it's Star Trek, we're all going to boldly go and meet these aliens and we'll get along with them relatively well or we might shoot a few but for the most part we'll have a, a decent relationship um and really no discussion of what about us are we going to get ourselves together in order to be able to meet these other peoples um and butler's take on that was eh, maybe um with a whole lot of mess in the way um and i love the fact that she did not pull punches on that um, that was refreshing for me at the point that I encountered her. Yeah, yeah. And so I heard you say in other interviews that you've been writing since you were a small child. Um, but when did you start getting serious about wanting to publish your work? Uh, I turned 30 and had a mini midlife crisis. Hmm. <laughs> a very early midlife crisis. Um, that was the point where I kind of decided, you know, I want certain things out of life. 
Um, and one of those things is that I want to, you know, see if this thing that I've always done for fun uh, is any good. Um, and the way that I decided to determine whether it was any good was to see if it was publishable. Um, so, you know, at the time, I, I wasn't really entirely sure how to begin. Um, I started researching it, and uh, I called up my father and asked him if he would uh, loan me some money to go to Viable Paradise, which later on I looked it up and found out they had scholarships. But anyway, <laughs> um, at the time, I didn't see that part. Um, but, you know, I, I begged Dad to, to let me borrow some money, and I did pay him back uh, to go to Viable Paradise, and uh, he paid for it, and I tried to get in, and I did get in. Um, and that was where I really kind of got my first taste of, hey, you are good enough. Uh, this is the, the process you need to follow, or these are the steps you need to take. Um, and basically a nice, useful blueprint for how to make that dream become something real. So I started following those steps and lo and behold, it worked. So yeah, that's an endorsement for Viable Paradise too. So Yeah, no, it's a great workshop. I attended that as well. Ah, did you? Okay. Um, but so is your dad a science fiction fan? Could he relate to your desire to want to attend the workshop? He's both a science fiction fan and an artist. Yeah. Um, when I was growing up, we, we would watch uh, old school Star Trek and the Twilight Zone every night uh, on Channel 11 at one in the morning um, during the summer times. And uh, he would talk with me about them afterward. And, you know, he was he was geekier than I was about those shows in particular, because he would be like, this is the first kiss between a woman of color and white man on television in years. And I had no idea. Um, but uh, so, yeah, he was a giant science fiction fan. He was also very familiar with the desire to kind of express yourself through uh, artistic means. He, he pub publishes, I'm sorry, he uh, does artwork as Noah Jemison, um, and, uh, Noah is in the Ark, um, and, uh, does visual work and so forth. So I, I decided to not really follow in his artistic footsteps, but, uh, writing is a form of art and he was pleased that something of the creativity passed down to me. So. Yeah. Well, wow. That's great. So so then so you attended Viable Paradise and then what happened after Viable Paradise? Did you get an agent or were you sending out stories or what was the next step for you? Uh, the next step for me was getting better at writing. Um, I had actually already sent uh, a novel to I think the Tor slush pile, um, which was not a very good novel I have to admit. Um, and uh, I sent it to the Tor slush pile. Um, and then of course years passed because the tour slush pile in those days took a really long time. Um, and, uh, meanwhile was when I went to Viable Paradise and, uh, there they talked to me about the fact that I wrote novels or had always written novels, but had never even attempted short stories. Um, and several of the folks there basically convinced me that learning how to write short stories would make me a better novel writer. Um, because before that, I had been kind of thinking, you know, short stories and novels are not really the same art form. Um, and they kind of aren't. But that said, um, if you do cultivate the ability to grab uh, a reader quickly and to tell a story succinctly, that can only help your novel writing. And they were right about that. So I joined uh, a writing group. Uh, we, The folks that had been in VP created a writing group uh, that we called the Boston area science fiction writers for a while until we decided that we needed a better name and became the brawlers. Um, I don't remember what that stands for. Um, 
but so we formed a writing group in Boston at the time, meeting once a month, um, and, and celebrating not just successes and submissions and so forth, but also celebrating the other parts of being a writer, like rejections. Um, we had this tradition where, uh, you know, once we earned, I think, every 50 rejections, we went out for beer. Um, that kind of thing. Right. And so then I assume you started selling some short stories? Yeah. Um, relatively quickly, although, um, you know, I, I continued to rack up rejections for quite a while. Um, but, uh, I think my first pro sale, took several years. I, I did a number of uh, uh, semi-pro sales before that. Um, but then, you know, once I'd done enough sort of uh, semi-pro sales, I kind of felt like I was getting the hang of the short fiction format and I started writing novels again. Uh, that's when I started working on the books that became the Dreamblood. And uh, when I finished the first one of those, I sought an agent and that's when I got my agent roughly... 2005, 2006, somewhere thereabouts. Um, so that's when I got Lucienne Diver, who is, uh, was my agent then and still is now. And I continued writing short stories and I continued trying to get, uh, short stories published and, um, having better successes with those as I got better as a writer in that area. Um, and I really do think that learning how to write short stories did make me a better novelist. Um, and it started to show in the successes I started having with the novels from that point on. Right. So that was The Killing Moon, right? Was the. Mm -hmm. It had a different name at the time. But yeah, <laughs> um, all of my early novel uh, names were, were something different. I'm terrible at naming things. Um, but uh, yeah, so the book that became The Killing Moon was my first finished publishable, in my opinion, novel. And it's the one that got me my agent. Um, but it didn't sell. Uh, it got sent to all the New York houses. Um, some of them were more positive than others, including Orbit, the folks that, that ultimately did buy it. But, uh, some of them sent it back with kind of perplexing or uncomfortable notes saying that they were uncomfortable with it, essentially. Um, they weren't sure how to sell it. They weren't sure what audience would possibly be interested in it. Those kinds of things. Um... And I got a little frustrated with that. Um, I'm understating things quite a bit here. I went through a long, dark night of the soul, actually, um, kind of trying to decide whether I even really wanted to continue with this genre or whether I wanted to continue trying, trying to write at all. Um, and around that time, I actually started exploring self-publishing options and so forth, um, because I was hearing from a lot of other writers of color that, you know, my chances were none. Um, you know, the genre did not want writers of color writing about characters of color. Um, and, uh, you know, unless I was willing to give up some things that were near and dear to my heart, like seeing people like me in fantasy and science fictional settings, um, you know, their, their conclusion was don't even bother. Um, but I will say that a couple of things kind of changed my mind about that. One was having my writing group, which was as supportive as it was. And the other was my agent, who was as supportive as she was. Um, she really did believe in uh, The Killing Moon. Um, she did urge me to try writing another book, which I did. Um, in fact, I took an old book and retooled it, literally reworked it from scratch, uh, which was the book that became uh, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. Um, 
and I retooled it to make it more what I was then capable of writing. Um, I, I had become a much, much better writer in the meantime. And uh, when I read it, when I read the old draft, I was kind of like, something about this just isn't right. I don't know exactly what. And I scrapped it entirely and started over from scratch. And it just worked so much better the second time. I think I just wasn't good enough to write that book first, at first. And then uh, second time was the charm. Well, right. And I heard you talk about in interviews how actually the frustration of your experience with The Killing Moon actually informs your the the hundred thousand kingdoms the the form it took could you talk a little bit more about that uh well i was angry um and so yena spins the book very angry um i think that was that was partly me channeling you know take that publishing industry um but you know a lot of it was sort of a generalized anger about you know, I, I I can read the subtext. I can hear the unspoken. Um, and when someone is saying that, uh, you know, The Killing Moon is a bog standard fantasy novel in, in every way, except in that it takes place in Egypt and has an almost entirely black cast. Um, it was third person. It was very traditionally shaped. Um, you know, there was a quest. Uh, there were bad guys. Um, you know, it was as traditional as I could make it without putting it in a very traditional medieval European setting and giving it uh, a white male protagonist instead of black males, two black men and one black woman. Um, and so when I hear these statements like, I'm not sure how to sell this, um, I'm not sure who its audience would be, the assumption, the implication of that is, I don't think its audience would be the existing fantasy readership. Um, and I don't think the existing fantasy readership would buy this book. And I was angry about that because it just kind of smacked of the whole, you know, we're not racist, they're racist. Um, you know, we don't discriminate, they would discriminate. We're just trying to look out for you. Um, and I think pretty much every person of color has encountered that kind of attitude and those kinds of excuses at some point. Um, so it felt very clear to me um, what was really going on and what was what the subtext was. Um, and so when I rewrote the story, I think initially um, in the early version of it, uh, the protagonist was male. Um, the protagonist, I didn't mention their race, um, although I did mention, you know, that their culture and uh, their class was something not acceptable. But I, I don't think I had even really gotten into describing skin colors at the time that I, I first wrote the book. Um and when I re decided to rewrite it from scratch, I just said, I'm going to write this the way I feel like writing it. Um, and the voice that was speaking to me was first person. So I decided to do it in first person. The character felt a little blah to me. I decided to make her more interesting to me. Um, and she ended up being a woman of color, although not a black woman, although lots of people seem to think she's black. But... um. I ended up making her a small, scrappy little woman of color who is cold and not necessarily likable, certainly not perky. Um, and she felt real to me, um, if not necessarily bankable. Um, but I said, whatever, I'm going to write what I feel like this time. And that was what resulted. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we mentioned that this book, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, was the first novel of yours to get published. Could you talk about that experience? What was it like having that book get published and what sort of response did you get? Um, I I think the first inclination that I, I got that the response was going to be positive was actually when the book went to auction. 
Um, so for folks that are not familiar with how the publishing industry works, um, or at least the traditional publishing industry, uh, you give a book to your agent, your agent gives it to a bunch of publishers um, and says, let us know if you're interested. Um, the publishers then say, hey, I am interested and we'd be willing to buy this book for X number of dollars. Um, and this is the kind of contract and these are the rights that we want, yada, yada, yada. Um, well, when multiple publishers respond that way, then the agent is like, woohoo, bonus time, and um, <laughs> turns it into a kind of game show where, you know, I, I don't know, this is in my head. Um, <laughs> basically, I was at work that day, and um, Lucienne kept calling me throughout the day to say, okay, so publisher A has said X number of dollars, and they really like this book, and they would like to find out if you're willing to do a sequel. And I'm like, yeah. Hmm. And then, you know, a few hours later, okay, publisher B doubled that offer and wants three books. And I'm like, yeah. Um, and and as the day wore on, I was kind of more and more shell-shocked, and my coworkers were just sort of like, what's wrong with Nora today? Um, because I would periodically close the door and scream. <laughs> so... um yeah, it was a scream of excitement, but it was still a scream. Um, so that was my first in inkling that it was it was kind of a a better book than I had thought it was, and that the response to it was going to be a lot better than I'd sort of thought it was. Because I developed a sort of bad uh, impression of of the genre based on the reception to The Killing Moon. Um, you know, I, I kept thinking to myself, well, you know. I'm angry with these these publishers that didn't want the book, but at the same time, they know the, the industry better than I do. They know the genre and the audience better than I do. What if they're right? And what if all these people that have been telling me it's a waste of your time to try and traditionally publish, just do it self-publishing? What if they're right? Um, you know, I'd be, I'd be lying to say that the self-doubt wasn't there. Um, and, you know, all that said, the book was not a bestseller when it did finally come out. Um, it has sold steadily um for all these years it is it has never really stopped or slowed down um i get nice even uh royalty checks for it which is nice um and it seems to have gained popularity over time and through like a, a steady plateau of readership as opposed to any kind of arc or curve um and that's wonderful i mean i'd say that if i had all the sales that I got over the years, if I'd gotten them relatively quickly, then yeah, it would have been a bestseller. But, it, you know, in terms of flat sales, um, what you want as a writer is to have enough sales to keep your career going. <laughs> and that's what I've got. Yeah, well, and I heard you say, actually, that the book sold well enough that you were able to quit your day job, which is the dream of most writers. But you discovered you didn't actually want to quit your day job. Well, okay. Um, the book, the advance was good enough that I was able to, I kind of had to, um, because with the way that the, the deal was structured, I needed to deliver books two and three relatively fast. Um, and I didn't think I could do that on top of the job that I had at the time, which was roughly 65 hours a week and involved a lot of travel. Um, and so I quit that job. Um, because I kind of felt like there was no way I could do both and, and, you know, continue to function as a breathing <laughs> human being. Um, and I also did, you know, I, I decided to use that as a chance to sort of see what the, the dream writer's life of, of, you know, just living on my writing was like. Um, 
And that's when I discovered that I am miserable when I don't have enough to do. So um, I sat at home for about three months, uh, you know, going out. I, I tried to make sure that I created a nice routine for myself. I would get up at nine every day. Um, I would go to the gym. I would come back. I would go to the coffee shop and I would write. Um, and I would make sure I did a certain number of words per day. And it was very productive, but on the same level, I just kind of felt like something. I was just missing things that I needed to feel fulfilled. Um, I really do like my day job. My day job career involves working with uh, young adults, um, mostly college students, and helping them figure out their lives. Um, and that's just cool. So I missed it. And I went back um, after a while and got a part-time job. And eventually, um, when the money from the advance started to run out and New York started to look more and more expensive, um, I decided to go back to a full-time job. Um, largely, that was for the insurance. Um, this was before Obamacare. And my health insurance um, was starting to look more and more prohibitive. And I didn't like the idea of trying to wing it and see if I don't get hit by a bus. Um, so I decided to go back to work in a job that was much lower in terms of its time demands. Um, and so thus far that's worked out. My, my day job folks have been very supportive. Um, they're all aware of my writing career. Um, my students aren't, which is kind of interesting. Um, some of them do, some of them figure it out. Hmm. Um, you know, a few of them that are into fantasy and science fiction say, Hey, your name's a lot like the name of this author I like. And I'm like, really? <laughs> um, and I don't say anything, but, uh, but that said, uh, you know, my, my current day job is very supportive. Uh, they don't mind me doing things like Skype interviews on the, the <laughs> work computer after hours. Um, and that's worked out nicely. Right, right. And so we mentioned that, yeah, so you finished the Inheritance Trilogy and then the, the earlier books, including The Killing Moon, the Dreamblood series, you finished those as well. What kind of um, fan letters and things do you get? What do people really respond to in those two series? With The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms and The Dreamblood, they are, they are somewhat different audiences, I think. Um, a lot of the folks who liked The Inheritance Trilogy did not necessarily like The Dreamblood um, and vice versa. You know, I get a lot of people who like historical flavored fantasy loving the Dreamblood and then bouncing hard off the Inheritance trilogy. Um, and th that's not necessarily something they convey in fan mail. Um, it's just something that I've noticed in terms of uh, I, I do read my reviews, which um, I'm going to have to stop doing with the fifth season because while I'm still writing that trilogy, it's it's making me a little crazy. So I'm going to I'm going to try not to do that with uh, the Broken Earth trilogy. Um, but I have read my reviews for the other two series, and um, it's it's clear to me that different things are speaking to different readers there. Um, although I will say both sets of readers do seem to really like the fact that what I'm writing is not traditional fantasy. Um, even the Dreamblood, which I said is traditionally shaped, um, just the choice of, you know, an, an all-black cast. I think there's like three white people in it. Um but, you know, I think just the choice of an all-black cast is radical enough to, to interest um, folks who, who are doing that, who are interested in that. Um, and the choice of an Egyptian setting, certainly not, I'm not the first writer to do so. Um, you know, Judith Tarr, a bunch of other folks have, have touched on that subject matter. But, um, you know, it's, it's still rare. And I think for people who are getting tired of traditional fantasy or have have left 
uh, I hear a lot of people saying that, you know, I stopped reading fantasy because it was the same story over and over again, or the same setting or the same kind of story over and over again. Um, and people who are, are sick of fantasy seem to be pulled back into it by my writing. Um, you know, and of course there are some folks who are, are still, who've never left fantasy who like it. Um, but I'm kind of heartened to help to further the genre by, by stemming some of the loss that we, we get. Um, you know, that benefits not just me, I think. Um, but you know, I'm glad that it benefits me. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Well, well, right. And so you mentioned that this new series is called The Broken Earth, and the first book is called The Fifth Season. Could you just tell us a bit about how this project came about? There were kind of two or three impetuses. Um, one is is a dream that I had. Um, and I think most of my stuff stems from weird dreams that I start trying to um, trying to explain in logical terms or making logic to fit the dream. Um, and that's how the sort of initial world building starts. But then the other piece of it is, um, I felt like it was time to do something that would challenge myself. Um, I felt like, okay, I've tried, uh, writing three standalone stories in the same universe. I've tried writing first person and third person. Um, I've tried, you know, a story set in an Earth-like place and a story set in a vaguely Earth-flavored place. Um, why don't I try writing a story in nothing that resembles this world um, with a group of magical beings that are not mythological um, in a setting that is based on logic and how planets work, um, but is still fantasy. Um, and I did not set out intending to do the second person component that is, is part of the way that the fifth season, that the, the trilogy, um, is being told. Um, I didn't set out to do that, but as I was writing test chapters, that was the voice that seemed to work best. And I kind of resisted it for a while. I, I, I felt like, you know, this is not necessarily the way to tell any fantasy story. Um, I didn't think I liked second person, and I know a lot of other people that say that they don't. Um, but as I tried working on it, it just felt right. Um, and I tend to go with my gut on these things because my gut's been right so far. So, um, I finished it that way. And the result was this, this story that I could not tell in a single volume. And so, um, this is going to be the first, uh, I guess, contiguous fantasy. I don't know what you call it when you write a series that is, the same story of the same person just spread out over time. Um, so this one is different from everything I've written before in that the, the stories are not complete standalones. Um, I don't think they're going to be standalone at all, but it's hard to say at this point. Right. And so, and you mentioned that this was partially inspired by a dream. Do you want to tell people what that dream was? Um, yeah. I mean, the dream was super brief. Uh, I had a dream of a pissed off woman walking toward me uh, with a mountain floating along behind her. And me, I was not visible. I don't know why she was mad at me, but I just knew she was going to throw that mountain at me. And that was kind of, that was it. I, I, I woke up sort of in a cold sweat thinking, oh my God, a mountain. Um, and how do I stop a mountain? And then also, you know, kind of trying to figure out, okay, what do I do with this? And why was this woman mad? And 
how is that mountain floating along behind her and why is it a mountain? And, you know, then I needed to, again, build logic around that dream. And it took a while. It took a very long time. I, I actually kind of came up with the, the, I had the dream and I kind of came up with the core idea, uh, in between the, the, uh, end of the King, I'm sorry, the end of the Inheritance trilogy and me revising the Dreamblood books for, uh, their publication. Um, I came up with it, but then I needed to do a lot of research because I know squat about seismology, uh, geology, any of that stuff. So it literally took me like a year or so of, of research before I kind of felt re- ready to even begin writing. Um, and even then I still, I started writing while still doing research. Like I went to Hawaii to visit some volcanoes and things like that. Um, so that's basically it. Right. And, and the fact that you did a lot of research into seismology is very, very evident in this book. Uh, and this book is full of really, really interesting words, uh, some of which are real and some of which I think are that you coined yourself. I have one paragraph here I want to read to give people a flavor of this. So one of the characters says in the book, everything does point to either a major, a pyrogenic deformation, or possibly just a simple disruption of isostasy throughout the entire plate network. But the amount of orogenesis needed to overcome that much inertia is prohibitive. <laughs> uh, I just love all those words. But so a lot of those are, are real, right? You want to talk about um, like what, if anyone wants to write, a, if any writers want to write a book about uh, earthquakes and volcanoes and things. What do you find are the best uh, resources that they should look into? Well, just to back up with that passage, um, I-, I will say that was done for comedic effect. <laughs> um, that was me deliberately pulling a, a techno babble moment. Um, and in that same scene, all the other characters in the room stare at that character like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, I also have no idea how that plays to real seismologists. Um, my guess is that they're like, oh, technobabble and BS. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, um, the, the best resource that I actually got was, was interviewing some seismologists, um, talking to some seismologists. Um, you know, there, there are actually a number of, um, watering holes on the internet for seismologists, uh, amateur and professional. Um, and if you go into places like that, the, the various boards, and you're very nice about saying, hi, I'm a science fiction fantasy writer who is interested in learning a little bit more. What very basic, you know, like plate tectonics for dummies books can you recommend? Um, and actually I got a lot of resources that weren't so much books as, uh, a few scientific articles, um, and actually visiting museums was was also useful for me. But um, I actually found it most useful to literally physically go to a volcano. And, you know, things like smelling the sulfur and, and you know, seeing what the sky looks like over a caldera and realizing how fast uh, forests grow back in the wake of a major... Um, seismic or or volcanic event um i walked across the kilauea iki um which was a lava lake 50 years ago and now you can hike across it and there's a small early growth forest developing in it um at one end of it um and i i stopped and i i had some spam sushi with me and i toasted my spam sushi over one of the heat vents um so i got to eat some seismic energy um, <laughs> some geothermal energy um and it was delicious anyway 
Um, so that was the stuff that I was looking for, was not so much science. It is fantasy at the end of the day. It is, I am telling a story that is meant to be interesting and engaging to people. I'm not writing a textbook. Right. Well, and you also say in the in the afterward that you uh, were influenced, at least to some extent, by the Launchpad Workshop. Uh, oh, yeah. What, what uh, role did that play in kind of the development of the idea? Well, Launchpad has actually impacted pretty much all of my novels thus far. Um, you see it the least in the Inheritance Trilogy, um, I think largely because I was sort of partway through it um, at the time when, uh, when I went to Launchpad. But in the Dreamblood, um, you know, for those that don't know, the story is set on the moon of a gas giant, and I needed to figure out what the phases of that gas giant would look like in the sky to the people on that planet. Um, so there I was, you know, in Launchpad doing some uh, orbital mechanics and things like that and trying to figure out, okay, what happens if this moon gets in the way? Oh, I just destroyed the planet. No, bad idea. Mm -hmm. um, and so on. <laughs> um, so it was helpful to kind of just sort of work that out in my head. Now, how much of that actually turned up in the story? Probably two sentences worth. Um, but that said, understanding it helped me, helped me come up with some concepts that I had not before. Um, and so then with this one, what I was trying to figure out was, um, what happens if you've got a planet that does certain things? Um, what happens if you've got a single large landmass? How does that get in the way of, oh, things like, uh, prevailing winds and water currents and so forth? And how does that impact what the landmass turns out to be? Um, I don't think that was anything necessarily that we discussed in Launchpad proper, but since Launchpad was a bunch of smart people who liked science, um, geeking out together, we had lots of interesting conversations over time about, uh, well, well, I remember one really good conversation over beer one night. Um, and I can't get too deeply into that conversation because there's some spoilerific stuff that I don't want to mess up for people who haven't read the fifth season yet. Um, but it was really useful. Yeah. And I think we should say just for listeners that what the um, Launchpad Workshop is. Do you oh, want yeah. To say a bit more about. Sure. Um, Launchpad is a NASA-sponsored workshop uh, aimed at influencers, for lack of a better description. Um, people who kind of have the ear of the media or the ear of the zeitgeist, I guess. Um, and it's uh, kind of flattering that they think science fiction and fantasy writers uh, might be such people. But, um, you know, they made the very clear case that one of the reasons that a lot of Americans believe complete bunk about, uh, you know, the way that, you know, say, for example, the seasons work. Um, one of the reasons that this complete bunk has spread through uh, the, the collective uh, societal knowledge scape is because science fiction and fantasy writers have been telling complete bunk in, in a few cases and other people. Um, in my launchpad workshop, there were comedians there. Uh, Brian Mallow, who's the, the science comedian, I think is what he's known as. Um, and, uh, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a complete blank. Phil Plate, you mentioned was there. Phil Plate was giving a lecture. He wasn't really like a student in the workshop. Um, but Phil Plate is, uh, the bad astronomer who is, is known as the, he used to run the bad astronomy blog, which I think was part of discover.com. I, I don't remember. Um, and he's still active, uh, on various media, um, magazines and Twitter, um, debunking bunk. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think. 
most recently I saw him complaining about a meme that was going around saying that uh, Mars and the moon were going to show up in the sky as looking the same size as each other on some particular date in August. And he was like, no, no, it's just <laughs> not going to happen. Um, so he was one of the people involved in helping to present the information in the workshop. So, um, but the, the workshop proper is run by Mike. Oh my gosh. Brotherton. Thank you so much. Um, Mike Brotherton, uh, who is a physics professor at, uh, University of Wyoming. Um, so it was actually really fantastic. Okay. So we mentioned that the series is called The Broken Earth and this novel is called The Fifth Season. Do you want to just explain what those titles mean? Uh, well, uh, the Broken Earth trilogy name is something I literally just kind of came up with. Um, I, I told you I'm bad at naming. Um, I was trying to think of a name for this series. Um, my editor had asked for a complete synopsis. I was like, uh, 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 rocks, something about rocks, uh, earth, uh, stones, broken stones. No, that doesn't sound right. And that's how I came up with that. Um, with the fifth season, though, it's the name of a phenomenon that occurs in this world. Um, the fifth season is set in a world in which, uh, for various reasons, um, every few years or so, there is a extinction level event. Um, in some cases, it's triggered by a volcanic eruption or a massive earthquake. Um, in some cases, it's triggered by um, various gaseous emissions that cause long-term negative effects on on the uh, ecosystem in the air in a given area um, that triggers famines or something like that. Um, and it causes uh, communities. This is a society that is um, sort of. Uh, uh, it was at one point a, a globe-spanning society, um, but they've developed a system of kind of preparing themselves for these events, which they call fifth seasons. Um, and uh, in that system, whenever a season is declared, whenever they notice, oh, hey, the, the, the sun hasn't come out for like three months um, and uh, we're starving, um, things like that. Uh, then they declare seasonal law and every small community turns itself into a self-sufficient uh, survivor community. Um, and they store massive amounts of uh, food against the eventuality that this, that this will happen. Um, they build walls. Uh, they keep their population small because, and, and they separate themselves into groups of, of, essentially casts based on usefulness. Um, so the fifth season is referring to um, essentially this cultural phenomenon as well as the the ecological phenomenon that triggers it. Right, right. And so you have this sort of post-apocalyptic type vibe to the setting. And then also there's uh, some magical elements to it. You want to talk about the magic system in this world? Basically, there are people in this world that have the ability to uh, control seismic energy. Um, they uh, can trigger earthquakes. They can stop earthquakes. Um, they can shut down a volcano um, and channel away all that heat into water or somewhere else. Um, they can stop geysers and gaseous emissions and things like that. Um, and they are tremendously useful in this world. But the catch is that uh, they use energy to do these things. And when there's already an earthquake or a volcano going off, they can use the energy of that. Um, when there's nothing happening, though, 
they drag energy from the ambient, from everything around them, um, including the heat and kinetic motion of living things. Um, so they kill a whole lot of people. Um, so they're called orogenes, um, and this is a fantasy mutilation of a real word, uh, the, the science of orogenesis or orogeny. Um, is the, the processes through which mountains are created. Um, and I just thought it was a cool word and let's turn it into fantasy word. Um, so these orogenes have this ability. Um, but there's more magical elements to the story than the orogenes. Um, and the story focuses on orogenes and, and how they are treated by their society, which both values and is terrified of them and, uh, tries to control them and successfully does so in a lot of cases by essentially enslaving them. Um, but, uh, other pieces of the story are, uh, there are these giant obelisks floating around in the sky. Nobody really knows why. Um, but they're big, shiny gemstones that seem to be flickering in and out of reality. Um, sometimes they seem real. Sometimes they seem translucent or, or like ghosts. Um, and they do things, but it takes a while in the story to realize what they do. And there's also a non-human race in this, which was my attempt to sort of uh, take the idea of the mythological creatures that you see in a lot of fantasy and create a set of mythological creatures from scratch. Um, and instead of making elves or dwarves or whatever else we're used to seeing, um, I wanted to create something new. Um, and these creatures are called stone eaters, um, and they look like statues, um, like, you know, very realistic, uh, classical statues, um, human features and so forth, but they are alive. Um, and they can transit through stone. They, uh, can do a lot more than that, but I don't want to get into spoilers. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, but you mentioned that a lot of the novel focuses on the way the origins are treated by their society, and they have this kind of magical academy called the Fulcrum. And I was wondering if you could just talk about, I mean, obviously there are magical academies in Harry Potter and Earthsea. Could you just say a bit about how the Fulcrum uh, compares to the magic schools we see in other kinds of fantasy? Um, it's evil. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's the simplest. Okay, uh, I don't want to get simplistic and binary here and talk about good and evil. Um, but it is very much a part of the system of oppression that they've put in place. Um, origins are not permitted to exist unless they are um, products of this fulcrum. Um, and I will go along here and just sort of point out that I'm a giant uh, Bioware Mass Effect and Dragon Age fan. Um, and I will say that this was probably influenced um, until I didn't realize it until I was like halfway through the first book. Um, but I realized that this is influenced by um, Dragon Age's mages and uh, what are they called? Mage circles? Yes. It's been a while since I uh, played a Dragon Age game. But anyway, um, so, you know, there are other places in fantasy and science fiction where I've seen um, similar systems put in place. But in this case, um, it's. Small children or um, very, you know, basically anybody before their teens, if they're caught uh, and found to be an origin at that point, and it's an essentially random thing. It just pops up in the populace, you know, whenever someone has this ability. Um, they, they just luck up with it or unluck up with it, whatever you want to call it. 
Um, and uh, a group of people called Guardians will come and get them and take them to the Fulcrum. And where at the Fulcrum, they learn how to control their ability. Now, if they learn how to control it well enough, then they become Imperial Origins, um, and they are dispatched to various places on the continent to, uh, you know, seal volcanoes and, you know, kind of help to stave off the coming of the next fifth season. They are trusted to do this because they've been, they've, they've learned how to control their power. They'll never kill anybody by accident. Um, that kind of thing. But if they don't learn it well enough, um, they're simply killed. Uh, the system cannot abide those who are not good at learning or those who are not obedient. Um, and so it's, it's how a lot of systems of oppression work. Um, it was also inspired partly by, um, you've probably heard of, uh, reservation schools and, uh, schools to which, uh, indigenous peoples in multiple continents. This was not just a North American thing, but also Australian and so forth. Um, where the children of indigenous people were, were snatched away and sent off to these places where they weren't permitted to use their own language, um, and where they were forced to acculturate to white society because it almost always happened in European colonized places. Um, forced to acculturate on pain of death and in some cases well um it wasn't overtly said that it was on pain of death but in in actual practicality a lot of these a lot of kids died in these schools um and so you know there were a lot of influences in this um but i was thinking about the ways in which oppression tends to work um it is not always a, a case of you know an evil overlord coming in and saying wahaha um i'm going to make you my slave in a lot of cases you've got people complicit in the system who are part of it themselves the fulcrum is run by orogenes um and you you see that it is not a kind or gentle place despite that yeah yeah well you mentioned bioware games and one thing i was really wondering is i've heard you say in interviews that you used to play dungeons and dragons as as i did and my favorite campaign setting was the dark sun campaign setting and i was just <laughs> wondering if you'd ever played that no um around the time that i really was just wanting to play D D, um i found an early group that i got involved in and, and they kind of soured me on it um, because I wanted to be a paladin who was a black woman and the, the dungeon master at the time was like, no, you can't, you know, paladins have to be white guys. Uh, um, yeah, I know, I know we were kids in, in, in this person's defense. Um, but that said, um, you know, it left a bad taste in my mouth and I stopped playing. So until I got to college, um, and when I got to college, I found, uh, a group of multiracial, uh, very geeky players who, um, got me back into tabletop gaming, um, for, for several years. And I loved it then, um, because I had the, the dungeon master. Well, we played multiple games. It wasn't just D and D. In fact, I don't think we ever did play D and D. Um, so the dungeon master though was perfectly cool with, you know, you having a black female character who was whatever. And because I was comfortable, because I could do that, I started having characters that weren't just black women. Um, you know, once I was allowed to be anything I wanted to be, I could then, I, and I did then become anything I wanted to be. Um, but no, I wanted to play Dark Sun, but uh, around the time that uh, I fell out of love with gaming was around the time that that came out. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, if you ever get a chance, you should check it out because it's sort of a post-apocalyptic fantasy, and they have these magic users called defilers, and every time they cast magic, it sucks all the life out of the yeah. It's fascinating. I remember that. I, I remember reading the um, playbook, but yeah, I will check it out at some point. <laughs> all right. Cool. So, I mean, one thing that really—I mean, I—I I really love this book, and one thing that really struck me in the afterward is you say that you were there was a point at which you had to be talked into keeping it going that you were considering just giving up on it. I, I find that inconceivable, but wh- oh, what was going on that you would just think of just abandoning the project? Um, I, I think every writer has these moments of self doubt. Um, and mine tend to be along the lines of, is anybody going to want to read this? Um, you know, I, I look at the genre and I see how the genre rewards adherence to formula or adherence to a particular style and mode and, uh, setting and so forth. Um, and although I've read a lot of very different stuff in other genres, I had not read a lot of second person in fantasy, for example. I mean, even though that's only one of the three perspectives in, in the fifth season, um, it's still a perspective. And I, I'd gotten the distinct impression that nobody liked second person um, and that no one was going to read it because of the second person. And, um, you know, even though I had seen other writers tackle sort of post-apocalyptic flavored fantasy before, um, most notably uh, Brandon Sanderson and the Mistborn books, um, it, it again, it was not common. Um, and a lot of people in this genre are very, hmm, what's the word? Very particular about how they want things. You know, it's like the, 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 the old, uh, Reese's commercials. You got your, your peanut butter in my chocolate. You got <laughs> chocolate in my peanut butter. And I think I was, I was terrified that the entire fantasy readership would take a look at this and be like, you got your science fiction in my fantasy. Um, what is wrong with you? And you got your literary writing styles in my fantasy. Um, you know, I, I still get flack from people who, got pissed off about the first person that I used in the Inheritance Trilogy. Um, because first person is just not done in epic fantasy, apparently. Um, it is. It's been done. But, you know, there are a lot of readers who who are like, I don't want it in my fantasy. Um, or who don't want romance in their fantasy. Or who don't want whatever. Um, and I was doing a lot of things that were probably going to annoy those kinds of readers. Um and so, yeah, I, I kind of had a long, dark night of the soul again. I have those often. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I called up my, my editor and I was like, you know, look, I, I, I don't think this is going to work. This is terrible. Um, I'm going to send you the, the bit that I've got, but it's, it's awful. Um, awful, awful, awful. Um, and, uh, what do you think if I change this from being a trilogy into, I can I can rework it as a standalone that ends after the first book, and then I'm going to go cry somewhere. Um, and and she was basically like, "Calm down, Laura." Um, <laughs> and she gave me some extra time to kind of go sit and think about it and 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 decide how I really felt about it. Um, and I took some time, and during that time, I wrote uh, the Awakened Kingdom. Um, I needed like a palate cleanser, basically. And The Awakened Kingdom is a novella, um, roughly 40,000 words, 
sort of sequel to the Inheritance trilogy um, that is about as lighthearted as that Inheritance trilogy can ever get. Um, and it was from the perspective of a child god who, you know, does and says a lot of funny, cutesy things. I needed happiness and light for a while. Um, and after that break, I went back to it. Um, the, the book was finished, but I, I went back and read it and was finally like, okay, this is not as terrible as I thought it was. Um, I don't know if it's going to do any good or if it's going to end my career, but I'm satisfied with, with what I've produced and I am now willing to continue with it. Um, and so at that point, uh, I sent it off and in its final form and we started the process of production. So, yeah, I, I just think it's terrific. So I, I really encourage everyone to read it. Uh, and I hope, I hope it doesn't end your career because I'm looking forward <laughs> to the next two books. I hope not either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Okay. And then also I wanted to ask you about the, the dedication of this book says that it's for all those who have to fight for the respect that everyone else is given without question. Do you want to say anything? Just what does that mean to you? Or do you want to say anything more about that? Uh, sure. While I was writing this book was when uh, Ferguson and kind of the Black Lives Matter uh, protests began. And, um, you know, I attended one rally for solidarity with Ferguson here in New York. I, I don't often have time to do protesting anymore. I'm 42 and I have a day job. But, um, you know, I went when I could, um, and, and when I, my, my career, my, both of my careers would spare. Um, and it's hard to follow Twitter to pay attention to, to world events and kind of realize that this is happening over and over again. And it has always been happening. Um, and that really only the advent of social media is, is making, sort of the mainstream world aware of stuff that we've always known. You know, I was raised, uh, to be very wary of the police. I was raised to stay away from them unless you absolutely have to, um, because they're dangerous. Um, and, and I was told that if I ever get pulled over, there are certain things that I have to do. There's, there's the talk that all black parents have with always with their boys, sometimes with their girls too. I think they should have them with, with all their, their black kids because it's, it's an issue for everybody. But, um, and it, it just started to really grate on me because every day there was a new hashtag. Every day, uh, someone else had been killed or harassed or beaten or had their spine broken for looking at the cops. Nothing more than that. Or for talking back or, you know, for, for anything. It, and I just, it wore on me. Um, and so this novel is in a lot of ways my processing, um, the systemic racism that I kind of live with and see and am trying to kind of come to terms with. Um, you know, it's covering a lot of issues. There's a lot of different kinds of identities being explored in the story. It's very layered, I think, um, in some cases because I just kind of felt like real life is layered. I shouldn't be doing just one thing. Um, and, and I wanted to write stories that felt real to me and I wrote characters that felt real to me. But, um, so yeah, there's a, there's a trans woman in the story. There's, uh, gender issues, there's uh, explorations of uh, relationship configurations and so on. But at the core of it, the origins are me trying to process systemic racism. Um, and, you know, one of the, the ways in which the origins were kept in line was that they were 
told, uh, the, the fulcrum is part of this acculturation. They're, they are told repeatedly that if you act right, if you are respectable enough, um, then you won't be hurt. And it's a lie. Um, it's always a lie when you hear that kind of thing. Um, because, you know, being respectable didn't stop, you know, Skip Gates from being arrested for trying to get into his own home. Um, and, you know, so forth. But, um, so that was me processing, um, real world events. A lot of times my fiction is allegorical. And in some cases it's, it's, it's not deliberately allegorical, but, you know, whatever is going on in my head tends to flavor what's coming out on paper. And I realized it in the case of the fifth season. Um, and, and that was where that came from. Yeah, yeah. No, in the book, it does feel very, very real. And, and like I said, I was, I was really impressed by this. So, oh, good. Um, all right. Thank you. And unfortunately, uh, we're pretty much out of time. So just in order to wrap things up, do you want to just tell us what's the status of the next two books in the Broken Earth trilogy? And just is there anything else that you want to mention? Ah, uh, the status. Um, <laughs> I have finished the zeroth draft of the second book. Um, I've been hesitant to give it a name, but it sounds like we're going to stick with the name that I initially came up with, which is the Obelisk Gate. Um, and I will not explain that because spoilers. Um, but I have seen uh, the draft cover of it. Um, Orbit will probably do a big debut at some point soon. Um, so because the zeroth draft is done, I am currently working on a revision to polish it up into a first draft. Um, and I intend to turn that in uh, by the end of this month because, A, I want it off my plate, and B, I promised myself that if I finished it before my birthday, which is September 19th, I'm going to buy a PS4 finally. <laughs> um, and I want that PS4, so I'm finishing it by the end of August. <laughs> so... Um, so it is It is done. It needs to be made presentable. Um, book three, I will start probably after about a month of, of relaxation time. Um, and uh, other than that, I've got some short stories that I've written and are in slush piles and may get published soon. Um, I have another novel idea that's brewing in the back of my head, Lord help me. Um, and that's pretty much what's going on so far. Right. I guess I'll mention, too, that you have a short story called Stone Hunger, which is set in the same. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I'm working on a novel, I will often do something that I call a proof of concept story to kind of test out the world and see if it's ready to be novelized. So I'll write a short story set in that world. Um, and Stone Hunger was that story. Um, I think one of the characters in it shares a name with one of the characters in the fifth season, but beyond that, uh, the characters are not related, um, and the stories are not related. Just happens to be in the same setting. Um, but if you want a taste of The Broken Earth, uh, without having to read an entire trilogy, um, Stone Hunger was published by Clark's World, uh, I don't remember the date, like a year ago. Yeah, so just people, just everyone Google Stone Hunger and N.K. Jemison, and you'll find it and check it out. And go ahead and order the fifth season. It's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. And I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with N.K. Jemison. The book, again, it's called The Fifth Season. So, Nora, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to N.K. Jemison for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes. 
including Francisco BGM in the UK, who writes, Thank you for making such a great show. Love the discussions and the reviews you do. This is my morning commute entertainment, and it is also a great source of inspiration when thinking up new stories. Keep it up. So big thanks again to Francisco BGM for that great review. Special thanks as well to Victor Thorne and Joshua Preston, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.